welcome to the first episode of a new podcast from Diary Mulut Ke Mulut Buku. I'm Erin Cook. I write Diary Mulut Ke Mulut, which is a newsletter a couple of times a week that looks at all of all of the region, Southeast Asia, from Myanmar all the way to Timor-Leste. Launching this podcast has been a long-time ambition for me in the newsletter. I've wanted to do a book club for a long time, but we have a lot of readers in a lot of different time zones across the world. So I figured rather than setting up another newsletter or getting everybody back onto Zoom, I know I for one have had more than enough of it, a podcast would be the way to go. So every couple of weeks we'll be chatting with a author or authors who have released books about or from the region. I'm personally a big time non-fiction fan so I think this will uh, this podcast project will tend to skew that way but there has been some brilliant fiction work a lot of great fantastic novels that have come out in recent years so I'm really looking forward to exploring those genres a lot more and it's an enormous region so I would love to hear some feedback what have I missed what what are the, some great books that came out during the pandemic that didn't quite get the uh the attention you thought that they deserved or what's new what's coming out I'd love to hear um your thoughts your recommendations keep me in mind if you read something fantastic in the next few weeks. As for today, we'll get started with Joshua Kalansik's Beijing's Global Media Offensive. Joshua is a senior fellow for Southeast Asia at the Council on Foreign Relations in the US. He's also a former journalist based in the region. The book looks at how China uses uh, what he calls sharp power as opposed to soft power, which he has previously looked at in another book, um, to, to project its influence across the world. He looks at uh, not just Southeast Asia, but states in Africa, uh, as well as other countries um, like Australia, Western Europe, that sort of thing. It's a very wide sweeping book. It looks both at how and why China wields the influence it does and how that has changed local media ecosystems. Southeast Asia, of course, is a very diverse region. So the, the impact and, and the methods China uses uh, look different country by country, which makes it a, a very, very interesting read. What works for China's sharp power in Cambodia won't work in Singapore, but what works in Singapore won't necessarily work in Indonesia either. So this book looks at the, the various techniques and how it's tailored for for an audience country, the, the market that China is hoping to, to break into. This is the second book I've read from Joshua Kalansik. Uh, just before chatting with him about um, Media Offensive, actually, I finished The Ideal Man, The Tragedy of Jim Thompson, which was also brilliant. That was really, really illuminating about Jim Thompson's uh, life in Bangkok and as well as his later disappearance in Malaysia. So if you also really liked that one, I would definitely recommend picking up Media Offensive. I think it's uh, very ambitious in its scope and maybe just about the only thing I've ever read that does give a very, very um, detailed overview of what Chinese influence on media specifically looks like in the region. So big recommend there. And we had a chat about the book shortly just before Christmas last year. Thank you so much for joining me, Joshua Klancik, and let's get into it. For people interested in US-China relations and what that means for Southeast Asia, it's been um, a gluttonous few years. So why uh, this book? Why media? And why now? I thought that I wanted to kind of revisit some of the themes from a book I'd written a lot earlier, Charm Offensive. and sort of reassess what things were like um, in the region with China as a much 
more powerful regional actor and assess what they were going to try to do to make themselves potentially more appealing while also being a much more powerful actor. And so I wanted to look at the role of whether their seat media, which they were pouring huge sums of money into, was actually evolving into something that was appealing, not just in Southeast Asia, but anywhere. I think originally, I think that someone at CGTN or someone in general overseeing the ver- their various outlets wanted to make them like Al Jazeera to make them more respectable. Wanted to see whether they were actually capable of doing that and to also evaluate sort of the other ways in which China was wielding influence regionally and other places as a much greater power and to see whether they could have success using the media, using information, increasingly using disinformation to wield power. Um, I actually started the research in 2016, 2017 with the idea that they were becoming more effective. They At that point, they have been hiring a lot of prominent journalists at these, out, at these outlets and taking over the Chinese language media and whole point range of places. And I can't actually kind of came to the conclusion that they weren't being very effective. That was not my original theory, but that was what I came out of. And um, I think that actually most of the state media has been pretty ineffective. Um, they haven't gained much of an audience share with the exception of Xinhua, maybe through its content sharing agreements, and that China has been actually pretty clumsy at wielding its influence as it's become more, more powerful. Um, they haven't necessarily become that more, much more skillful. And obviously, the last three years of zero COVID up till now, and growing authoritarianism and mismanagement of COVID hasn't helped either. State-owned media service Xinhua is a major factor in the book. Kalantik considers it to be the, the more successful of China's media operations abroad especially when it's compared to TV station CGTN, which he sees as failing to make too much of an impact on audiences abroad. I've been finding myself increasingly reliant on Xinhua when I'm compiling the the newsletter, um, especially in countries with few English language resources. So uh, Lao mostly, but increasingly in Cambodia. At this stage, Xinhua kind of, it falls a bit short of the other wire services of, you know, France's AFP or US-based Associated Press, but Xinhua is not going anywhere. Kalansik writes that the wire service is much, much cheaper than competitors or even free, which is always a big incentive for, for money-starved publications out there. But that presents its own challenges. I don't think it can ever be the AP as long as China is a highly authoritarian state, but I do think that in a lot of places it's going to become as widely used as the AP, maybe not picked up by all the like Australian newspapers or in New Zealand or the US, but in a lot of places that it's going to become, it's already in some places just become another news source, especially in places where news outlets don't have a lot of money and Xinhua is offered free or very cheap. We've increasingly seen that in Thailand and so it's it's a cheaper way to get a lot of content than to use the AP or AFP or Reuters or Bloomberg. Or, and they do a lot of coverage. Like they have a huge number of reporters um, in Southeast in, in developing regions in Southeast Asia and Africa and Latin America. So yeah, I think it's going to become as accepted as the AP in a lot of places. But that doesn't necessarily mean that like the quality. I don't think the quality. I mean, when it comes down to it. Xinhua is still a news agency that is a state-owned. The AP is a cooperative. Reuters is a, is a profit-making company. Bloomberg is a profit-making company. The AP is a cooperative based in a liberal democratic state. I mean, it's maybe not as democratic as it was 20 years ago, but, but Xinhua is still the state agency of a highly authoritarian regime, accurately trusts its reporting about things that are related to China. And it's still essentially also to some extent has an intelligence function in providing reference reports for Chinese leaders. 
I don't think it's ever going to be, as long as it kind of is a highly autocratic state, I don't think it can be the AP, but I do think it's becoming increasingly accepted. And the difference between that and like CGTN is people have to actively turn on CGTN or whatever, you know, you have to make an effort that you want to watch it to turn it on your TV. Or same thing for China Radio International, where Xinhua just kind of like seeps in the way the newswires do. Like I worked at AFP a long time ago. And we would get like a, a rundown of which English language papers all over Asia are stuff that appeared in the day after. We would get a rundown and like sometimes this is like a long time ago already, 20 years ago, but we would sometimes see we would see like how our stuff had appeared. And sometimes it would just frankly, it would appear at AFP tagline. Sometimes we just say agency. Sometimes there'd be no tagline at all. So people are just reading Xinhua stories. I mean, you may notice that you're reading Xinhua stories. I think but people who are not journalists don't really pay that much attention to the byline or tagline of a story, unless it's written by some really famous columnist or reporter, frankly. So I think especially in places where Xinhua has become more prevalent, like Southeast Asia, just editors are using the copy because it's cheap and or free and people are reading it. So I, I think it it's been more of a success story for China. Whereas like CGTN or CRI have no audience at all. They're almost... An interesting proposition throughout the book is how the relationship between China and its target audience country can tell us a lot about the ability of state media to have an impact. Uh, Kalansik takes a look at this sort of relationship across African states, Middle Eastern states. It's happening in Australia as well, as he points out. Uh, one of the most fascinating chapters of, of Media Offensive is when Kalansik takes a look at Cambodia. Cambodia media has been under fire for quite a while now and we saw a lot of publications disappear but there are a lot of new publications and they often have backing from from Chinese state media but as Kalansik notes this couldn't have happened without a very long record of very poor press freedoms so what impact does that have? Well I think in Cambodia the news is a lot of the news outlets that are still that lower left are outright looking to be like Chinese news outlets and that's fine with Hun Sen like because he's an autocrat and news outlets are looking to those that he hasn't shut down or hasn't thrown out of the country. The ones that are left are looking to be modern, but yet controlled and to be exciting, but yet controlled. And, and so they, and also they to have the appearance of not being propaganda, which I think CGTN was trying to do, although they failed. Um, they were trying to do that by hiring a lot of foreign reporters, like in North America and Europe. They hired a lot of local African reporters who were really good reporters. So I think in Cambodia, the, the, some several outlets outright want to be like Chinese outlets, and some clearly have stated that. In Thailand, I think also you have a symbiosis between the current, essentially, you know, military-ish government, military-ish royalist government, and a much freer press in Cambodia, but outlets that some outlets that have desired to be kind of like Chinese outlets and seemingly modern yet controlled and the government is fine with that. Other outlets in, China, in Thailand just starved, like used to be or are good news outlets like the Monsoon Group starved of money and they use Xinhua because it's cheap. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it, that's the, in general, China's mo- model of corporate journalism that these Chinese outlets are like has also become has also been utilized in a number of Middle Eastern and Af- African autocratic states too, where the goal is to not make it seem like it's turgid propaganda, but also 
to be controlled in the coverage of the government and the or the government's if the government if it's a major state if the government's foreign policy and also to minimize any public or throw a veil over any public criticism of leadership without while still seeming well with the media not looking like North Korea seeming like seemingly being open but not really so that that's also been utilized a number of African states and if you follow sort of the places where Xinhua is used and where there's a lot of money spent on journalism training etc some of those and there it also tends to mostly be spent in authoritarian states at least before COVID I don't know what's going to happen now because during COVID a lot of the journalism training programs and visit diplomacy that China was doing really, really heavily was all shut down. So I'm not sure where they're going to go with that now. No one's going to want to, no one wants to go to China now anyway. They weren't letting anyone in. And right now, COVID has upended a lot of their, their diplomacy in general. A major element uh, to me is the impact of China's media offensive on Chinese language media around the world. Uh, there's a whole chapter in there about um, what it looks like in Australia, which just blew my mind. That was all new information to me. Um, Singapore, of course, has a, a very large Chinese language media ecosystem, um, and there are some very some very serious concerns of undue influence by Beijing on those on those outlets. Singapore's heavy-handed uh, media regulations could be a safeguard, um, as well as the new foreign interference law which came through recently. But time will tell how effective that is. And can it address the government's far larger concerns about Chinese-Singapore relations? Definitely, there's a high level of concern that the Chinese media in Singapore is, when it comes down to it, like if they're stuck in this situation, like most countries in the region, and you know they're in the same position as everyone else in the region, like they're highly dependent on trade with China, but they they're much more strategically cautious than any other country in the region, other than Vietnam, cautious of China. So, and clo- more closely in line with the U.S. than any other country in the region, along with Vietnam, despite the U.S. not actually being a formal ally of Singapore, as you know. Yeah, I mean, I think the government and a lot of secure people in the security industry there are very concerned about the coverage in the Chinese language press in Singapore that they think is just, it uh, is uh, too pro-Beijing and not independent. And so those number of people who, who read that coverage, which is still under Singapore press holdings, AGs or whatever, so... They have a lot more control than, you know, you would have in a, a more freer, pla- a freer place, although not, per- perhaps not as much control as an outright authoritarian state. But there's a very high level of concern. And, you know, they pass this because they're already so uh, presses or there's already, you know, so controlled about certain issues. And it's already they already have such a hostile relationship with a civil society and, the, and certain independent press outlets that they pass this foreign interference legislation. But the problem is that obviously is that like like Australia pa- has passed it, and I mean I think there are reasons to have some concerns about laws that Australia has passed. But with Singapore, when they pass an interference law, it's obviously the degree of concern that people have. Even though there is real concern about China interfering in Singapore's domestic affairs, it's also concerned that Singapore's own government is going to use the law and is use it is going to use the law to punish civil society and independent media more. So the Australian government, you know. There are people who would say you can't trust them either. They, Australia does not have a for liberal democracy. Australia's press freedom record is pretty poor, very poor. So you know, and people, I think a lot of people who are not been spent much time in Australia or not familiar with the situation would be shocked at the way the press is treated in Australia compared to a place with more press freedom that is on a similar level of democracy, like New Zealand or a northern European state. Some of to some extent, some of the concern about Singapore's foreign interference law 
I could only write the book up to a certain time. I mean, there's, they were letting me put new stuff in and I was, I was able to keep putting some stuff in as close to publishing date as possible. I got stuff about the Ukraine war and, but yeah, I mean, there's only, at a certain point you have to stop. So. One thing I thought while reading Media Offensive is uh, where does the US fit into this? The US has a long history in the region of both uh, mainstream outlets covering the news and analysis and that sort of thing, but also some very dark days of propaganda. Is it fair to point a finger at Chinese media when US media has a long history of this sort of thing? I thought I had Kulancic nailed on this one, but then he says uh, virtually everybody he's ever spoken to about, about Media Offensive has asked the same question. And there's one crucial difference. In the Cold War, that might have been a better comparison because Voice of America was really often just straight up propaganda about certain issues. But the U.S. now has law has laws that both prevent those state U.S. funded government funded media from using from being sent back into the U.S. I mean, although you can go on, I can go on VOA's website, and they also have laws establishing the editorial independence. It's true that Trump, the Trump administration wanted to like uh, undermine many of those laws and make Trump it a couple times. I don't know how much he really focused on VOA or RFA, but at times he supposedly said that he wanted them to be like propaganda outlets. And because they were actually covering his administration pretty critically, and there was this whole investigation that they had, he made them do into Steve Herman, their White House reporter, who was writing critical pieces or not critical pieces, but pieces that chronicled some of the ups and downs of craziness and then was broadcasting them out to the world. And he didn't really understand why they were writing stories like that. You would never get a story like that in Xinhua about Xi Jinping that was just like said, you know, like they covered his impeachment and just like a normal outlet. And uh, AFP too had like a, a charter, you know, where there was an editorial, a BBC has has a editorial independence. So, I mean, I don't think it's a fair comparison. It would have been a fair comparison maybe back in the Cold War, but I don't think it's a fair comparison now. Radio Free Asia's job is different. There is to provide coverage of authoritarian governments in local languages in Asia. But VOA, which does write about the U stuff in the U.S., if you go to their coverage, it's like, you know, they, they do stories like if Biden administration's um, approval rating is really terrible or, you know, U.S. inflation rate goes up again or you know whatever like federal reserve predicts massive recession or um you know biden i mean uh before the elections you know they were doing stories like democrats are going to get destroyed in the election biden least popular president other than trump in american history so they they do plenty of stories that are accurate but aren't don't necessarily you know portray the u.s in a fair light i mean they cover the the George Floyd protests, that's like, their coverage was not really any different than like others, like covered like inequality and racism and the tinderbox that set off and stuff. And so at this point, it's not the Cold War. They're not propaganda outlets. I don't think you could compare Xinhua to those outlets. Maybe one day China will be a different place and Xinhua will be different. I, I don't know, but I don't know when that will be. But more provocative Chinese diplomats and people like the former editor of, of Global Times will make that comparison. And Chinese government itself often talks about Voice of America. They don't talk as much about Radio Free Asia. I haven't heard them talk about it that much. I think they don't want to draw attention to Radio Free Asia's coverage. Of, they don't even want to mention it because Radio Free Asia covers, Xinjiang covers Tibet. Somewhere. But for Southeast Asians... Who are, of us, who are older, I can definitely see that because, I, you know, during the Cold War, or at least and in Southeast Asia for sure, but at least before 75, when Southeast Asia was a priority region, <laughs> there was an intense amount of propaganda by the U.S. beamed into Southeast Asia. But I mean, I don't think that's the case now. 
Thank you so much to Joshua Kalancic for joining us today. That's Beijing's Media Offensive, which you can get just about anywhere now. Um, so definitely check it out. It's very far reaching in scope and we could have spent hours talking about it, I think. We will be back in a fortnight with the second episode of Buku. In the meantime, you can jump onto darimulut.substack.com where you can find weekly coverage of the region as well as a chance to win your own copy of Beijing's Media Offensive by Joshua Kalancic. Thank you so much and we'll see you in a fortnight. Mm-hmm.